Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to uh, um, have you along this morning at Sale Baptist Church, the, the virtual church that we are at the moment. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out to Pastor Brad for once again allowing me the opportunity to come up here and preach. Um, it has been a number of weeks. I'm sure you've noticed that uh, I've grown my beard back, which I know there was a few requests for it to, to come back, not from my mum, but from everybody else, I'm sure. Really wanted to see the beard back. Uh, but it was also enough time to probably give um, John McLaren a bit of a rest because I think on my last preach, he would have done a lot of editing. And if we ever, well, not when it went, not if we ever, but when we get back together and we do a blooper session, I'm sure that one sermon will feature quite heavily and I hope that doesn't get repeated again today. But we'll see how we go. So before I get into the message today, I, I did want to give a bit of a, um, an update on what's going on with the, the Boomer family. Um, as you may be aware, um, I know some people are aware, uh, the Boomers are moving back west. So we are in the very um, process of uh, trying to organise everything and get our house on the market and um, with the intention of moving back to WA by the end of the year. Um, it sort of came in a bit of a surprise to, to us as well. Um, we've been thinking about moving back to WA for a little while to be closer to, to parents, to siblings, to nieces and nephews, and with work offering um, voluntary redundancies, we thought it was just a really great opportunity to take that, to, to head back to WA. But what it does mean is that we do leave Sale Baptist Church, and... Um, that's not an easy thing to say goodbye to because for the last uh, 10, 11 years, the Sale Baptist Church family has been very much our family. As we've been away from our immediate family, we have come to really just be uh, immersed in this church, uh, immersed around all the people in this church. You know, we came uh, in 2010. And we came with just a newborn Sunny, so we learnt to be parents over here. Uh, we had another three children, and we know that we go leaving many really good friends behind. We have had people from the church that have cooked meals for us, that have uh, brought us groceries and, and many, many eggs, have come to fix things up in our house, you know, helped us in the garden, lent us tools and toys. We've had people babysit our kids, so Lou and I could uh, get away for weekends together. We've shared many meals with others. We've gone on holidays together. We've played sport with other people from the church. We've had great conversations discussing God's Word, and we've shared all the emotions together. It really has been our family. So I wanted to take just a little bit of time just to say thank you so much, and you will be missed. So, with that said, I'm now somehow going to get into preaching. Uh, and today, as we go through the stories of old, I wanted to discuss the, the story, uh, or a story, about Elijah. And the story that we're going to read from is going to be from uh, 1 Kings 19. So, as you find your way there in your Bibles or on your devices, um, I actually want to give a, just a little bit of a recap because... Uh, it's important to build that sort of context um, of where we're at with the story of Elijah, uh, who he is, and and also where he's at in his life. 
So in short, we're introduced to Elijah just a couple of chapters earlier in Kings. He's a prophet of God, um, and a prophet isn't a, a wizard, he's not a fortune teller, but someone that who spoke on God's behalf. You know, he called out idolatry and injustice. He was effectively the covenant watchdog, challenging Israel to repent and follow God. And he was a prophet primarily during um, the rule of King Ahab, who was ruling over Israel at the time. And, and King Ahab um, was said to be more evil than all the kings before him. So Elijah was going to be a busy prophet. King Ahab was married to Jezebel, who was a Canaanite. And together they had uh, replaced the, the God of Israel um, with Baal. And, and they set up the worship of Baal as uh, the main God within Israel. Um, in one encounter that Elijah had with King Ahab, he came and uh, told him that a drought was coming, or that a drought was here, and uh, that the drought would continue on until he gave word that it was going to stop. Straight after this, he then spent the next three years in hiding, away from the king. And he remained there until he got a word from God to say, now it's time to come and tell the king that the drought was over. And and as he goes to tell the king, he sets up this contest. And this contest is basically a challenge between uh, the God that he worships, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and the, the God that um, the king Ahab was worshipping, that of Baal. And he gathered all of the Israelites together, and, and all of these prophets of Baal came and um, set up an offering and, and asked for fire to be sent down to consume the offering. And, they danced around and they cut themselves and, and nothing happened. The offering just remained as was. And then it was Elijah's turn. And of course, as Elijah prayed out to God, you know, fire came down from heaven and, and it consumed the offering. It consumed the wood around the offering. It consumed the stones and the dust and, and even the water that was um, drenched on it. It was clearly a convincing victory. And at the time, the people fell on their faces saying, the Lord is God. Elijah puts to death these prophets of Baal, and then not long after, the rain also comes and the drought ends. With all that had happened, Elijah then runs back to Jezreel, the city that he'd been hiding from for the last three years. You know, what was God going to do next? And that is where we pick up this story in 1 Kings 19. So I'll read through. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, ate and drank, and went in strength of that food for forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. 
Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said to him, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall, not, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall also anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to bow. All the knees that have not bowed down to bow. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, as an engineer, not that I am one right now, but I loved the big picture. Uh, when I was working for ESSO, uh, my favourite role was one that sort of saw everything at once. I was in charge of this model that took into account all the details from the reservoirs, uh, where the, the gas and the oil is stored, the platforms, the pipelines, the plants, the markets, and I was able to give advice to the, the marketing teams, the gas marketing teams, on how much gas they could sell and when they could do it. This model saw all the factors and the information from all the bass trade, and it could predict what the future would look like when gas was going to run out. If we were going to make a change to the model, add in a new pipeline or drill a new well, we could predict with some level of uh, confidence how profitable that would be and how it would impact the, the other fields around it. You know, when I joined the team, only three other people within the whole organization knew how to run this model and to interpret the outputs of this model. So for the others, it was just seen as this sort of mystery, this black box. For those that knew how it worked, we could use it to give advice and no one could really challenge that advice because no one really knew how it worked. But history showed that it was always reliable. In this story of Elijah, a prophet of God, he thought that he had this black box all sorted out. He surely knew what God was going to do next. After defeating Baal on Mount Carmel, he runs into Jezreel 
despite leaving three years earlier as a marked man. But now, it was different. He didn't need to hide anymore, right? Surely this is where God would show up. That people would turn from their sin, they would turn from worshipping Baal, and their hearts would turn back to God. And acknowledge him, Elijah, as a servant of God. After all, that was what Elijah's prayer was um, that we read just before the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Uh, in 1 Kings 18, 36 through 37, it says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And up until this point, Elijah's prayers always seemed to be acted on by God. He was expectant that God would do as he prayed. Up until this point, God had always done what he prayed. If you read the couple of chapters beforehand, you'll see that you know, he talks to a widow and the flower and the oil doesn't run out. Um, the widow's son is raised to the life um, at his prayer. And even on Mount Carmel, we see fire come down and, and the, the drought ends on his prayer. But alas, it didn't go quite as Elijah had planned this time. In fact, it doesn't go anything like Elijah had expected. The people's hearts hadn't truly turned back to God, and no quicker did he run into the city expectant before he turned around and ran out afraid, fearing for his life. So the question is, did God get this one wrong? Shouldn't Elijah be allowed to feel disappointed, distressed, that God hadn't listened to his prayer and come through after him, and come through for him. After all, the fire came down and burnt the offering. Wasn't that a sign that God had accepted the offering? Didn't rain fall? Wasn't that a sign of restoration? Wasn't he the prophet of God after all, speaking on behalf of God? Surely he knew how God worked. What I like about Elijah here is how easily we can relate to him. So, in our lives, everything seems to be going maybe as expected. You know, you might get married, you might have children, uh, get a degree, you might get a good job, get involved in the church like you didn't expect to, uh, have great friends around you that you know, you've always really wanted. You know, whatever you want seems to be achievable. Even though sometimes things are hard, for the most part, God seems to be answering all of your prayers. Then at some point in life, things do get really hard. Responsibilities of parenting might seem to burden more than they give joy. The profession you get into doesn't look so great anymore. Or maybe it wasn't exactly what you expected and the thought of doing a 9 to 5 for the next 30 to 40 years seems really burdensome. You see more faults in people, and your relationships start to falter. You find faults in your theology, and your faith starts to falter. All of a sudden, not everything is achievable, and God doesn't seem to be answering all your prayers anymore. You start to question everything you think or you thought you had figured out earlier. You start to lose your direction, your purpose, your drive, that seemed so naturally at once upon a time. And that is what Elijah seems to be going through. 
Yeah, some may call this a midlife crisis, although it can happen a lot earlier on in life than just midlife. And it can happen, and if it can happen to Elijah, a prophet of God, then surely it can happen to any of us. Ultimately, we see that Elijah's despair, his depression, was a result of things not turning out like he thought they should. He had both an over-optimistic belief of how God should respond and a pessimistic view of God's ability. First, we see over-optimism. Elijah thought that he had God's plan all figured out. I follow God's instructions, I ask for a revival, and God brings revival. Simple. There was no recognition that God's plan might be different to his. You see, God has not let Elijah down. Elijah's plan has let him down. And it's only because he identifies God with his plan that he presumes that God has let him down. He puts God in a box. I do this, you do that. But what he finds out is that you can't put God in a box. We can't possibly see all that God is working. And even a prophet of God has not been given the exact transcript of when God will do things and how. But somehow, we assume we can. We still see this over-optimism of God all the time today. We assume whatever we pray will happen. We want to restore a relationship. All we need is prayer. You want COVID gone? You just got to pray it away. You want someone healed? Solution? Pray. If it doesn't happen, it's likely a result of having got the formula wrong. You didn't anoint with oil. You didn't have enough faith. Have you repented before asking? Or maybe you don't have that spiritual gift. Now, I have struggled with this sort of theology of God my whole life. I say this, and you do that, as if it was a given. And these are clearly good things, right? Elijah's prayer of revival was clearly a good thing to be asking. But just because it didn't happen right there and right then, just because it didn't go according to his plan, doesn't mean that God is not good and that God is not in control. More than likely, it just means that God has a different plan to yours. And I want to be clear that I'm not trying to diminish prayer and I'm not trying to diminish the power of prayer. What I am challenging is how often do we pray and make our requests known and finish, not my will, but yours be done. The prayer that Jesus said when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross. When we pray, is our intention to shift God to do our will or allow God to shift us to his will? Are we willing to admit to ourselves that we don't actually have the big picture at all? The trust that God does, and that his plans are good, and they are happening. So we see over-optimism, but we also then see Elijah's pessimism in God's ability. We don't see this at first, but given time, when on the mountain of God, having fasted for 40 days, we see Elijah's inner thoughts as he talks to God. In verse 10, we read, I, even I only am left. He goes from thinking God will change everyone's heart right there and right then to thinking that he is the only one left. Conveniently, Elijah 
has either forgotten or dismissed his meeting with Obadiah just a few days before the, the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Uh, Obadiah, who was hiding, you know, a hundred prophets of God in caves away from King Ahab. Instead, he believes there is no one else out there that can do what he has done. There's no one else there that God is using and that I'm all you've got left, God. You know, maybe it's not that God isn't good. Maybe it's that God isn't in control. Maybe he can't change hearts. I'm sure we've all been in this place of questioning God's ability. You know, where is the breakthrough? Where is the peace? Where is the restoration? Where is the redemption? And once again, in doing so, we put God in a box. So Elijah runs away from it all. He is spent. His career as a prophet is over. He lets go of his staff. We see that when he leaves his servant behind. And he heads out into the wilderness, wanting it all to end. Now, even in this situation of complete despair, complete depression, he doesn't presume that he has the right to take his own life. But he does ask God to do it. And in doing so, he waits for God's response. So how does God respond? The first thing we see that God does is send an angel of the Lord to cook Elijah a meal. God doesn't come to Elijah to explain what his problems are, to confront his thoughts. He doesn't tell him that he needs to repent or that he needs to somehow justify himself and his actions. He doesn't come to encourage Elijah, to tell him that he just needs to get back in the game. In fact, there's barely any talking at all. God draws near to Elijah. The angel cooks for him, touches him, and lets him eat and sleep. God has made us, and he knows that we are physical beings, that we need restoration of our physical needs. Sometimes that means that what we need is a good meal, a drink, a rest. Maybe it's getting away for a weekend. Maybe it's being outside in nature. Maybe it's reading a good book. But we are more than just physical beings. And while the body of Elijah might be restored early on, what about his mind? What about his soul? We must also remember that we are more than just one nature, particularly when we're trying to help someone else who is depressed, who is struggling, who is directionless. You can tell someone's worldview by how they approach someone who is depressed. Those that think it is only physical, all you need is a good meal, right? To get back on your feet, to get back in the game. You know, maybe you need to go and exercise, you know, get, get fit, get your body working, get those endorphins flowing. Maybe it's a chemical imbalance. So the solution is medication. You know, go see a doctor, just take a pill. Everything is just scientific. So the solution must be science-based. The assumption, we are basically just animals anyway, right? Then there are those that have the worldview that everything is psychological in nature. The solution to everything is just talking it over. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, you know, I can't judge you. I can't tell you what you've done is wrong. But we just need to talk it out. And then there are those that have the worldview of the everything is spiritual. Or just primarily that we're spiritual. We're just spiritual beings. So, therefore, you know, the issue is probably one of lack of repentance or there must be sin in your life. 
Maybe you lack faith. You know, if you're struggling, you pray it out. In this worldview, no one takes a pill or medication. You don't see a doctor or a psychiatrist. You just need to be part of a good Bible study and have people pray over you. But in reality, we cannot just have a worldview where we reduce everything to one of our natures. You know, we have to have a balanced view of our mind, of our body, and of our soul. You know, God created us complex. He created us with all these different natures. And our problems are therefore likely to be complex. So we need a balanced approach in order to be fully restored. And this is God's approach when he comes to Elijah. And we see that God treats Elijah's physical needs. Rest, food, closeness. Then we see God address Elijah's psychological nature. He lets him talk and he listens. God's questioning of Elijah is not so that God can get any new information, but it's more of a chance to allow Elijah to talk. Elijah is able to verbalize to himself what is happening. We bottle up our thoughts, our concerns. When we verbalize it out loud to others or to, to God in prayer, we really see what we are thinking. God, for the most part, is listening to Elijah. And then God restores Elijah's spiritual nature. He speaks into Elijah's life in a quiet whisper. It's not the miraculous, the wind, the earthquake, the fire that draws Elijah out of the cave, but rather a quiet whisper. Often, we are looking for the miraculous from God. Just show me a sign, God. Show me something big, and then I will be restored. Then I will follow you again. Then my doubts will go away. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story of a rich man who dies and finds himself in Hades. And he's worried that his brothers, who are still on earth, will end up in the same place as him. So he sees Abraham on the other side, and he, and he tries to reach out to him and convince him that, that if, if Abraham could raise someone from the dead, then his brothers would believe. And... Abraham tells him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Spiritual restoration comes through a word of God. That is what draws Elijah out of the cave, just like it did when Jonah went and spoke to the Ninevites. It wasn't the miraculous that led to repentance, it was the word of God. And as God speaks, he corrects and encourages Elijah. Here is a reminder that God does have a plan. It may not look like what he thought. In fact, it doesn't look anything like he could, that he thought or could imagine. You only have to look at who God has asked Elijah to anoint. Two kings that weren't God followers and continue to do terrible things in Israel. But he also encourages Elijah that he isn't the only one left. There are several thousand followers who do not bow down to Baal and will be protected by God. There's no way that Elijah could have known all of this. And we do not know what God is doing in the world around us, even in this time. We do not have the big picture as much as what we would like to think we do. So God restores Elijah. He restores him physically, restores him mentally, and he restores him spiritually. Following this encounter, Elijah doesn't remain in despair and depressed and despondent, but rather he seems renewed in strength. He continues on with God's work, 
as a prophet. We no longer see him running off when he's asked to confront the king again. The circumstances around him haven't changed, but he has changed. What we also see up on the mountain is the gospel message, a message of God's grace and kindness. God deals with Elijah gently and lovingly. He is not angry, but gracious and merciful. While Elijah is quick to point out everybody else's flaws and their hard hearts towards God, God is able to show Elijah his failures, his foolish thinking, his hard heart, and rather than striking him, he shelters him and restores him. Probably my favourite preacher at the moment, Dr. Timothy Keller, he describes the gospel message as this, as recognising that we are more sinful than we believe or know, and being more accepted and loved than we ever hoped for. Often our view of sin is too little, and our view of grace is therefore too little. This leads to that sort of religious thinking that maybe we can earn our own salvation. Maybe if we're good enough, God will accept us. This is how Elijah saw, this is how Elijah saw himself, up on the mountain. Others may be sinful, others turn from you, but I'm in the good books. God will have to save me. And Elijah, as Elijah made his complaint known to God, God says to Elijah in verse 11, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Remembering that he was lodging in this cave, he obviously doesn't go out as God has commanded, because if he went out, he would have been struck by the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. These descriptions of great wind, of earthquake, of fire, they are often used to describe God's judgments, or God's judgment. Now, his righteous judgment could have come upon the earth. It could have taken out the Israelites, who didn't turn their hearts back to God. It could have taken out King Ahab and Jezebel. But what we know is that if Elijah had walked out of that cave, it would have consumed him too. Elijah was only protected because he was sheltered in the cave, in the rock. Had he not been sheltered in that cave, when the wind came, when the earth trembled, when the fire came down, he too would have been broken into pieces, just like that rock. Many years later, Jesus would come to earth, God's own son. And he didn't come to bring judgment like many thought that he would bring. But instead, he came to bear judgment. He was the rock that sheltered us from God's judgment. He was broken into pieces so that we didn't need to be. While hanging on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, verse 49, But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Elijah didn't come to save Jesus. Jesus came to save Elijah. And he came to save you and he came to save me. God's plan was much better than Elijah could have ever imagined or thought of. Redemption for all by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, God's own Son. 
We have to remember that when things aren't going to our plans, that God still has a plan. And he has a plan for you. It may not look like what you want it to, but boxing God into your thoughts, your ways, will likely lead to despair and depression, as it did for Elijah. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We take God out of the box when we acknowledge that his ways are higher than our own. That his thoughts are higher than our own. The song I've been listening to uh, basically all this week as I've been preparing this message is a song by House Fires. It's called Lift You High. I just love these lyrics. The lyrics say, His banner is love over us. And his mercies are new every morning. So we lift you high. Forever lift you high. High within our hearts. High within our minds. Jesus, you alone, our rock, our cornerstone. I wanted to finish where I started and say that Sale Baptist Church has been amazing to our family. Because we did have people that we could share meals with, that let us have a break. We had people that we could talk to and tell of our concerns. We opened God's word together. When the church is alive and well, it is meeting physical needs, psychological needs, and spiritual needs. As a family, we have been greatly supported, and I would encourage that we all continue to find ways that we can support each other over this time. We need to look out for each other. We need to give our time when we have someone over. We need to make sure that we're looking after our leaders and let them also get the rest that they need. For Pastor Brad and Jackie and Lauren, but also for all the ministry leaders and all the Bible study leaders. If Elijah can get depressed, then it really can happen to any of us. Hopefully, we get to say goodbye to most of you before we go. But if we don't, I just wanted to say a huge thank you from the Boomer family. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much that you see us in our entirety, Lord. That you are gentle with us, that you are gracious towards us, that you love us. I thank you for the people that you put around us, that support us, that encourage us, that we can talk to. Thank you, God, that you are a God that listens. Lord, I thank you are a God that gives us your word. Lord, and your word changes our hearts. Lord, may we find every day just being in your presence, reading your Bible, reading what you have given us. Lord, spend time thinking of who you are. And Lord, I know that you will continue to work in us and work through us for your kingdom. We thank you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And if you have joined us on a Sunday morning, I hope that you guys can stick around and join us in the Zoom after party that will be kicking off as soon as I finish talking. All right. Thanks, guys.